Good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to Social Convos. I'm your host, Diego, together with my co-host, Jean-Luc. And today we have another guest after a long time. So we're ready to get into it. Jean-Luc, how was your week? And tell us a bit on what people can expect today. So interesting. Today's interesting. So for people outside of Suriname, today is a double holiday in Suriname. We have, we celebrate two different, two different groups. We celebrate the indigenous, the Amerindians who lived here, they're like the, the first inhabitants of Suriname. And we also celebrate the Japanese, the, the contract, the migrant workers who came from Indonesia after the slavery was abolished. They came here as migrant workers. So we celebrate both these two groups, both today. But I was just, I was listening to your introduction. And for the past week, I had to go to old episodes. Like old yeah. conference episodes. And to hear the growth from how you used to do that same intro to how you do it now and, and the difference in cadence and also in energy level on how you present it, it's, it's interesting. I, I think you should definitely check out some old social conference episodes from like last year to get, a, get an idea of what I'm talking about. So, yeah, I actually didn't realize that it was, you know, a holiday. So I was <laughs> getting up and getting into the groove. Actually, yeah. was busy setting up some databases, but yeah, yeah let's get it was into a busy it. Day. It was definitely a busy day, but getting into it, our guest for today is somebody who I met in San Diego, very social media marketing world. And uh, a couple of years back before COVID, you know, Giano, who's always also been a guest on the show and I, we kind of, it, it's our thing to, to go. He, he goes from Curacao. I go from Suriname. Often we're in a group of three, four. Uh, people from Suriname then go to San Diego. And at a certain point, it was like, yeah, I, I'm really satisfied now because I'm working together. I'm I'm part of a team that's being led by this guy, Jeff, and he's just an awesome dude. And I was like, okay. And, and Giano was raving on, on about how awesome Jeff was. And, you know, Jeff being the guy that he was at a certain point also took, took the opportunity and introduced himself to me. And we started kind of hitting it off, talking about different topics. And then actually this year during social media conference, I came to the conference and all of a sudden Jeff was there in our team because Jeff used to be like one of the leads of the room host, like making sure that everything is proper in the room. And he'll tell a little bit about, about that as well. But he changed to the Cat Do squad, the squad that I've been in for the past the three, three editions of, of the conference. And now he was all of a sudden, he was my lead instead of being Giano's lead. And I got to experience like what, what Giano was talking about. And I think this was, I'm not, I'm not sure that's a good thing, but this was for me, the most easygoing social media conference that I ever had as part of the Can Do Squad, because yeah, working, working as, as part of the team of Jeff is like one of the best things to experience. So if you're ever in social media marketing world as a volunteer and you get to work, uh, in a team, just hope that Jeff is your lead and you're, you're going to have your, your best conference today. So without further ado, I want to introduce Jeff Powell. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm great, man. I'm not sure I can live up to those expectations that you've set up for me, but uh, right. dude, it's, it's so cool from, for you to have me on this, this podcast, man. I'm excited about being here. 
Yeah, I didn't know that you had two. Yeah, two holidays today, man. That is, God, I wish we did that. Well, yeah. we we end up with like eighteen of different holidays because mm-hmm. kind of every ethnic group kind of has their own as their own holiday. And imagine if if the U.S. would do the same thing that our country is doing, you'd probably end up with maybe thirty. <laughs> like, I wish we did. <laughs> I wish we did. I, we we need to celebrate all of the the groups that we have in this country. We just don't do that, man. We have we have the occasional group that we groups that we we celebrate, man. But it'd be great if we. If we took that time and, and celebrated as many groups and people who have had the the fortune and sometimes misfortune of building this this country, it'd be great if we could, you know, take a step back and actually celebrate them like like Suriname does, man. That's awesome. I love hearing that. So on state level, is is it different? Like are there like several states in the US that that celebrate certain holidays separately from other states? Yeah, the the states have their own. I mean, they're just federal holidays, obviously. But then, then each of the governors of the states typically will have their own ability to create certain holidays based on the celebrities or or important sports figures or important community activists or something like that. They might say, "Hey, today is you know X Y Z holiday to celebrate the contributions of this individual to this state." Or this community, and, and that's that's pretty cool. And, and I love that the states have that ability to do that. But it's it's not always quite as celebrated. It's like you kind of have to be within that kind of community to know. So it's more that, like in, in marketing terms, more niche, more exactly <laughs> significantly more niche. And it, it's whereas like for us, it's more like cultural, historical, like a, a moment in time yeah. recognition. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I, I think there was a time where I, where I think the American culture did celebrate that, celebrate maybe the wrong groups of people or just the different groups of people. That there was more, I think there was more emphasis put on that, but it's not so much anymore. Well, well, here's the thing: we call it a national holiday, but like yeah. we're a population a population of six hundred thousand. So, like compared to most states, it's like okay, it, yeah, it, it's less it, than it would be like a it would be like a local thing. Like sure. You, no, I got you. Yeah, I got so, you. Okay, but but here's the fun thing. So when right. we were researching, because I was like, okay, let's see if let's see how much I know about Jeff. What are the topics okay. that we can talk uh, about? Because okay. of course we can talk about social media, but that that would be too easy. So sure. when we started researching, we found like a lot of Jeff Halls, like a yeah. lot of them. So, <laughs> With <laughs> a lot. What do you mean? Like, like we found an artist or was, I'm not sure if it's a guitar player or a. Oh yeah. There's a bass player for a band in, in Florida. Yeah. Then there was a, there's a major league baseball pitcher. There's me. And there is there, I believe there's a street painter in San Francisco. And there's one other dude. This one I don't really claim. I think he's a hillbilly in Tennessee. He's, <laughs> he's got he's he's the guy. I think he like if you ever see the picture of those of those white dudes and those and those like blocky sunglasses that drive trucks. Have you ever seen that meme before? I think that Jeff Howell's one of those guys. Uh, I don't claim him. <laughs> okay, there's, there's one more. I think I saw also. Like okay. also somebody, a tech industry vice president. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, I remember and, seeing him. And a journalist as well. Oh, yeah. From New York. I've seen him. He writes a column for a, a paper in New York. Yeah. So 
let's uh, go into that a bit. So what was it like searching your own name the first time in Google? Like, and wh- when you found all of these different jabs? Like, oh my gosh, dude. All right. So, so if you, go, ways, <laughs> if you go way back into my Facebook profile pictures, one of my first ones was a snapshot of this dude who wrote that column for in New York. I, I, I just found like a Google image of him, of, of like his byline and his little profile picture for the newspaper. So that was one of my first like Facebook profile pics. It's surreal, man. It's like you think about. You know, you look at, you think your name, Jeff Howell. Now, you know, Jeff is a pretty common name, and Howell is actually somewhat common too. It's it's a it's a Welsh surname from Wales near Scotland, and there's actually a whole lot more Howells than I thought there was. And when you kind of put those two things together, obviously there's going to be a significant amount of people that have my name. So trying to i think i think the first time that i encountered this is when i was trying to come up with a name for my gmail account i just wanted it to be like straight up just jeff.howell because i figured well i'm the only one right and this was really early on in the adoption of gmail for most people so i figured i'd be able to get jeff.howell no big deal and i found out that it like jeff.howell was taken jeff howell was taken jeff underscore howell was taken jay howell was taken like there was all of these different combinations of what I wanted my email address to be to, you know, cause your email address is sort of like who you are. It's part of your identifier of what makes you, you. And when I couldn't get the one I wanted, I was like, man, that sucks. So, you know, I stick with Jay Howell 76, which is, which is cool. But so then that sort of tracked me into thinking about, well, how many other Jeff Howells are there? So this was actually, you know, early in Google's life too where it's only been, it'd been around for a few years. And so I started just searching Jeff Howell and I started seeing all of these different people that had my name. And it's kind of surreal because you sort of wonder like, what, what kind of experience does that person have? What's their life like? And if they were searching for their own name too, and I popped up, did they ever think about like, well, what's this, what's this Jeff Howell like? What does he do? How does he interact? Like, this one, this one Jeff Howell from Michigan, man, he hates Chris Collinsworth. What's that about? You know, there's, so you sort of look at, you, you look at your name, you see your name, it, it, it's, it's part of who you are. And then you realize that your name is attached to another individual, another person, another identity, another dude with a, di- with, with a different face. And it's almost kind of surreal, but it makes you think about, it almost makes the world smaller because you know that there are different people with the same name, having different experiences in their life, having a different reality than you are. And it makes you wonder like, what are they like? You know, you share the same name, what other shared experiences or different experiences might you have? Have paths ever crossed like that incidentally you bump into one of them like on in our life space? No, I haven't. Well, no, that's not true. There was a guy on Facebook that added me that had the same name. I don't really know much about him or where he was from. Oh, no, wait a minute. Now that you mention it, there was a kid in high school that had my name. All right, so. Whoa, okay. (laughs) This is a story. So, all right, way, way, way back when. When a group of Howells moved from Wales or Scotland. A group of Howells. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? 
group of Howells. They actually settled in Toronto, Canada. This was way, way back in the 1800s. They settled in Toronto. And then there was a group of, there were two groups that split off. One settled in Detroit, Michigan, where my parents were, were born and where I was born. And then there was a, a group of Howells that sort of settled in central New York. Now get this. When I was, when we, we, when I was very young, we moved to Boston. I lived in Boston for a few years and I loved it. But then we settled in, guess where? Central New York. And I happened to go to Lansing School District, which also just happens to be where a bunch of these Howells settled. So like I show up and the first thing everybody asks me, if I, am I related to Terry Howell? Am I related to Ben Howell? Am I related to Cindy Howell? Am I related to Ben Howell's brother, Jeff Howell? And so this other Jeff Howell was, I think he was two or three years below me in school. And so, yeah, man, I totally forgot about that. There was another Jeff Howell in my school and it's a small school. I graduated with a class of 76 people. So like the entire nine through 12 high school, like high school was only like 400 kids and there were two Jeff Howells in it. Man, I totally forgot about that. That's insane. That's insane. Yeah, I, I had not exactly the similar experience, but I have, like, I used to be like the only known Jean-Luc in, in Suriname, but there's actually yeah. now, I think one is more, for me, sometimes more famous because he's an artist, he's a poet, oh. and he won okay. the, uh, one of the national poet competitions here. Cool. So that's, uh, he's, uh, he's an artist. And then there's another one, Jean-Luc Maraco, who's in the same industry as I am. And oh, we okay. kind of work in the same kind of field. And I worked together with one, one or two of his employers in the past. So huh. occasionally, occasionally yeah. I would get sent an email that was supposed to uh, go okay. ahead other guy. and the other way around as well. That's then right. we would text each other and have fun. And the worst, the, 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 the funniest experience we had is he used to work for a company that I also worked for. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point. The CEO of the company sent me a text, like, you have to arrange this and this and this and this for Sushi Night. Okay. And I was like, you sure this is intended for me? And he replied <laughs> of something like, of course you dummy or some, not, not necessarily right. those words, but like, yeah, threw it off. Like, come on, come on, just do your job. Good plan. But, but, but in a, in a fun way. And then I don't remember if I just called her and say like, Hey, listen. <laughs> I, I'm really sure this was intended for the other Charlotte, but those instance, instances happened. So that's it's, funny. It's, it's really fun in, in those cases because we really laugh about it because we actually have a, a good relationship. So we can, we can text back and forth, say like, you, you, you won't believe what happened to me today. Or like, I, I sent you this email because I feel like this doesn't belong in my inbox. Right. But I really want to jump to, to ask you guys both a question. What was your first email address? My first email. Oh, Logan1980 at yahoo.com. Wow. Logan88? Logan1980 Logan, Logan at yahoo.com. And all right, there's a story behind this one. All right. So I was really big, and I still am into comic books. I'm one of those comic book nerds. I love the MCU, and I love Marvel Comics. And one of my favorite characters growing up was Wolverine, and Wolverine's you know, real name was Logan. Well, you know, for at the time before they found out what his real name was, it was Logan. And, and then I was dating a girl at the time who was born in 1980. So Logan 1976 was taken 
So it, I did Logan 1980 at, at Yahoo, which I haven't logged into that email. It is still only though. I, I haven't logged into it in probably 12 years. Oh, then you, you, even, you might have to recover it. I might have to. Yeah, I might have to recover it. Uh, Diego, do you remember what your, your... Yeah, I think it was Hotmail. I'm not exactly sure what the order was, but it had something with Blitz in it and my first name. So it was either Diego Blitz or Blitz Diego. And that was before I moved to Mail. It was short-lived, I think, two or three years around high school. And I swapped to Gmail as Gmail was coming out. And we had, uh, you know, IT classes. And then I wait, you were in high school when Gmail. Oh my gosh. Yeah. There's, there's an age difference. There's like, I see, there's, there's clearly, different age yeah. gaps. Yeah. I see that. Yeah. So that's, that's why we went in that direction, Jeff, to get um, my bad. <laughs> no, you're, you're good, dude. You're yeah. Good, dude. yeah. Uh, it was around high school. And no, I don't have X. Like Hotmail swapped. Oh, I, I did use it for a brief period. And then Hotmail swapped over to Life I think, Outlook. Yeah. Without well, Outlook. Outlook. So I migrated it. To Outlook, claim the the normal my first last name there, and then I think I just deactivated or deleted the other account. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I, I don't just... use it as something anymore. I like delete it now. Like yeah. I don't like having traces of my stuff online or stuff I don't use. <laughs> I get you. I'm squatting on Jeff at Outlook. I'm I I, can't, I I got that one as soon as they were transitioning from out, Hotmail to Outlook, and I. I have Jeff Howell, and I'm not getting rid of it. What about you, Jean? Look, what was your first yeah, time? I'm not thinking if, I, if when they switched to Outlook, if I did claim or not. But I started with Sark Rally Freak underscore Rally Freak. Oh my god! I don't know So you have to understand, like <laughs> I know Sark, the, the initials are S A R K, which okay. is the Surinamese Auto Rally, rally Club. club. Yeah. So like, oh okay. Like car right. is like Auto Rally. And at the time I was like 14, I think 13, 14. Oh, so of course you were in the cars. And yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Why not? So, so right. I, I got it. I think it was around 1998, somewhere around 98, I think. I actually got my Yahoo early 2000s. So I, I the interesting thing is most people in the 90 got Yahoo was, I mean, Yahoo was big. Yahoo was it. Yeah. Yeah. Yahoo was it. But of course the, the, the cool kids, like the children, the high school children, they, they, they went for, for Hotmail because Hotmail, yeah, that was good. I even had a, I think I had a Charluc at hotshot.com even, I think as well. <laughs> this was like, oh, yeah, these were like evil. I don't, that one, I, I completely lost track of it. I think I might still have my Hotmail. And I also have a Yahoo, which is even a crazier story because I, I won't say the name of the Yahoo one. I don't That's okay. It's, it's appropriate. <laughs> You're good. You're no, good. good. Very good. So the reason why I ask is because you kind of, you, you transitions, you, you've had the experience of working in, in offline, offline spaces as well yeah. as in the media and as graphic designer. And then you've seen the rise of like how social media back now we're talking about the web 3.0, but right. or web three, but then we were talking about web two. Yeah. Basically. So, so right. just for, for, for people like Diego, who've never experienced, had that experience of, mm -hmm. well, he might have like the very early ages 
of what listen what the old yeah. world was like what was what was that like for you i i'll i'll tell you some stuff that'll blow your mind diego like so all right in in the printing industry so my my career started in print okay i went to school for for what's called what's was called offset lithography all right oh so you get it all right so i'm going to blow your mind here so you'll understand so what i when i was in high school i went to a tech tech college it was kind of like where your junior year and your senior year, so 11th and 12th grade in, in America, in, in some places, you could go to a trade school and learn a trade. And so what I did is I went for printing offset lithography. And so I learned how to do, you know, negative strip and negative shooting and stripping and plate making and all that stuff, like manual stuff, Diego. Listen, so I used to, I used to have to do, I used to have to take like a layout and sometimes I'd have to do it manually with like a mechanical layout and go to a camera. And so Jean-Luc, this camera would be like, it, it would be huge. It would be like, it would take up a room and it would have like this, this plat, this platform on the very bottom where you'd put the original piece that you needed to take a picture of. Right. And then there would be like these big, what thing called bellows, right? This accordion thing that would go up and down. And then on the very top of it, there would be, you put your piece of film and it would vacuum suck it down to the tray. And then you would expose the, expose the film with a you know bright light that's on this camera. Then it would, then you'd process the piece of film like you would a photograph. Right. And it would be, it would be a negative. So it'd be black and then clear after you've processed it. And then you'd have to do something called stripping. And then you'd have to take like this piece of orange film, this kind of orange plasticky thing called ruby lith and you would have to tape it in position of where this thing was supposed to be on the page before when it was being printed so then you would take the 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 what they called flat or a, a strip negative then you'd have to take it to a plate maker now the plate maker was this thing was a high uv source light and you'd have to take this aluminum plate that would have emulsion on it and the emulsion was like now i don't know if you remember like the back of like film, like camera film, where it's kind of like that orangey tan thing. That's called emulsion. It's the same thing. But sometimes it'd be green, sometimes it'd be brown based on the type of plate that you were using. And so you'd have to, then you'd have to take this negative and put it into a plate maker and then you have to burn the image of the negative into the plate. And then you'd have to manually like wash away the emulsion, like chemically treat the plate so it would wash away the emulsion. Oh, dude. Like for real, John. Look, I get you. Yeah, I get it. That's a lot, man. And then either you could put it through a machine, or when I was in school, I actually learned how to do it manually. I'd have to take like this soft bristle brush and treat it with this chemical, and then take it under some water, wash it again, and then I'd have to put the chemically treated again, so that when you took it to the press, the the spaces that had the burned-in image from the negative would accept the ink so then it would transfer it to the to a rubber blanket and then that would transfer it to the paper and then whatever didn't have an image on it would take on what would they call the water or the or the the plate wash and so you had to do all that manually right so like right now you could go to a computer you print off one a, a bunch of copies of you know whatever you want to print right black and white whatever yeah right so now if, but back and back, 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 way back in whatever time it was, you, you, so you'd have to take the, the mechanical thing, 
the mechanical you, you built by hand or a printed off copy from like, what was it called? I don't remember the name of the program. It was, it was pre-InDesign. PageMaker, that's what it was. And then you'd print off one copy of it. You take it to the camera. You, you, you shoot the negative. You strip the negative. You make the plate. Then you take the plate. You put it on the press. And then you'd have to like ink up the plate. And then you'd have to have, you have to find this balance between the, the water and the ink to make sure that it's not too much. Right. And so then you take the, if once you inked up the plate properly, then you take it to, then you, you, you would squeeze the plate cylinder and the, and the blanket cylinder, the blanket cylinder was this rubber, rubber blanket, rubber thing. And then, then you would take the, then the sheet would go through the press, but then it would be squeezed between the blanket and this other thing called the impression cylinder. And all of that, that would take you probably four hours, maybe an hour and a half. If you're what if you messed up like at step seven, you, you have to start all over again, man, start all <laughs> and you waste all that time. You waste the plate, waste the negative. Oh, don't get me started on trying to like shoot half tones either. Because when you, when you wanted to do a picture, like you couldn't just print a picture on a laser printer like you can now or, or a die sublimation printer or a screen or whatever. No, dude, you had to take a, you had to take like a screen, like a, like a DPI screen. And you'd have to like, you'd have to take in the, into that camera that I was talking about before, you'd have to break up like a continuous tone photograph, right? Which is, which is what all pictures are, continuous tone. And then break it up into the little tiny dots because a press can't handle a continuous tone or else it looks like a Xerox copy of a picture, right? So you have to break it up into little tones. So like the larger the dot, that's where the shadows are and the smaller the dot, that's where the highlights are. But you you had to do that manually back then. You couldn't just send it to a negative printer, which, I mean, you can do that now. You can actually go direct to plate now, but you'd have to actually like print out, take the photograph, let's go to the camera, You'd have to mess around with the screen to make sure it was the right angle. Dude. And there's so much more. It was like ca caveman days, man. But but I learned how to do all that. Yeah. I still remember it. And also, because you remember it, you know kind of the process that has now been kind of digitalized. So right. when something goes wrong, you know which part of the process it went wrong because you know all the right. different processes. I mean, I've had this discussion with my dad who was like in the 80s was into computers and, and okay. like he knows MS-DOS. Like I've seen yeah. MS-DOS. I know the commands that I have to do to play yeah. games. But yeah. aside from that, like it's it's completely foreign for me. But it's it interesting. Yeah. It is interesting. Yeah. And and I think that that translates well to, to understanding how far we've come, obviously. I mean, it's just the amount of information and the amount, the ability that we've gotten from, you know, doing all of this manual work to produce a page to being able to do a lot of it uh, digitally. There's a lost art there. You know, we, oh, we've lost that craftsmanship of producing something, right? So now the production is, you know, your Facebook posts or your content or your blog posts or your video or your TikTok or whatever. And all of that stuff's great because it, it does take some energy and some knowledge to produce something like that. But sometimes when you think about how 
the foundation of where this stuff came from. I have that. It actually you. makes me appreciate. Sometimes it makes you appreciate where the we are fork. even more. Yeah. yeah, the art form. So I have that with presentations. Like <clears throat> a lot of people, even in my team, they look like for them it's insane how fast I can put a PowerPoint, like a PowerPoint presentation of two hours. Right. I put right. it together like in they will say 10, 10 minutes, but it's it's closer to 20 to half an hour. Sure. And uh, basically, the process of thinking what slides, what's the setup of, of the presentation, that starts like three weeks in advance. So right. three weeks in advance, I'm, I'm making notes in Evernote and thinking like, okay, I want to first off start off with this topic. Okay, these three subtopics, I've already covered this like 10 times. So these slides, I can just get them from that presentation or I have them there in my computer. Mm-hmm. So when I finally have to put the, the whole presentation together, it's basically just copy paste or taking stuff from what I've done in the past. But when I first started, like at university, my very first presentation that I had to give was on an overhead projector, which <laughs> meant that I had to print out the slides first at the copy shop before I could actually present. So yeah, right, so, right. so if, if you make a mistake and you forget something or leave something out of the slide, it's not like, oh, I can just go in my PowerPoint and just correct right. it. You would have to yeah. reprint the whole slide and you have to have to go to the coffee shop. There would be a line because there's like thousands of students. So you wouldn't right. be the only one. And then you finally get your slides and then you have to run back to the building where you have to present. So basically mm-hmm. you had to be way more prepared than you have to, to be now. We had to be more precise, you know, it, it's yeah, preparation for sure. But I, I think sometimes your employees forget all of the, the mental preparation that you do ahead of time. Like you said, about three weeks ahead, you're thinking about, okay, I got to do this presentation in a couple of weeks. What am I going to do? And yeah, so, so your execution doesn't take that long, but your, your, your precision and your preparation and all of that takes so much more time than that. So question on preparation, like you've been into production, print production, and when you transition to digital, more creative stuff, how was the transition for you as in going from the production side to Mm -hmm. the more creative side in this media transition that you sure. Sure. And, and actually it, it wasn't, it was actually quite easy for me because I was able to translate a lot of the work I was doing in pre or like what they call pre-press, right? All of the stuff that happens before you take something to a press and translate that into sort of what, what they call electronic pre-press. So that's when you use something like Quark or PageMaker or a page layout program. And I was learning that on, on the job that I was at. And what I found is that I was, as I was working with these customer files, you know, whether they be magazines or, or periodicals or, you know, I used to work on things like Crane's Business News or, or, you know, a bunch of different magazines. I was able to see like how meticulous the designer was in being true to the brand that they were working with, right? So I, I was seeing how Crane's 
was consistent through all their pages. You know, they had their, their icon iconography a certain way. They had their page layout a certain way. They had the, the column width a certain size and the, the dimensions between the columns was all the same. You know, the logo was always a certain distance from other elements or a certain distance from the gripper side. Right. So I was, I was watching as I'm working with these files and doing what's called pre-flighting, making sure that all the fonts were there, the images were there, everything was, was working properly. And as it should, I was taking some extra time and, and learning how all of these premium brands that we were printing these things for were handling their own stuff. And it was pretty obvious when you would get a file where they just didn't give a crap, right? It was obvious. Like, they're just like, whatever. We're just going to print this thing because we're going to print this thing. And, and so when I was able, when I, when I was done working at that print factory and started working for a Kinko's of all things, now Kinko, you're familiar with Kinko's? It was like, a, what, it's FedEx office now, kind of like, you know, the copy shop, you, you know, UPS store kind of stuff. And when I was also working with the school newspaper on the college I was going to, I, I took a lot of those lessons that I learned, those things I saw working on those customer files and applying them to the stuff I was doing. And if I wanted to have a professional looking whatever I was working on, I needed to be very careful about how that branding or the, the font choices, the image choices, and how the thing was laid out, I had to be really careful because I wanted to produce something that looked professional and looked like that I was being very careful with whatever brand I was working on, you know, whether it be my own or somebody else's. And, and so the transition from, from just like a, a tactile physical production piece to digital was pretty easy because I already had that, that meticulous care of branding from an early, from, you know, early on. And that understanding of how are you portrayed, not just in production or on a printed piece of paper, but it also made sense to me digitally too. How is your brand portrayed online through a website or, you know, back then it was just like a web page or when Facebook became a thing, how your brand was utilizing the space that Facebook provided you, all that kind of stuff. So the transition to digital really wasn't that difficult because what, what was important to me when I was doing digital and social was how is the audience viewing whatever branding or whatever iconography or whatever message the brand wanted to portray? It is really interesting. The reason why I find this interesting is because a lot of people that go into the online space now or on social media, often it's their first job. Sure. So they don't have that, like knowing like how brands work and that's where it becomes difficult because then they want yeah. to work for a brand, like a big brand and they right. come up with something really creative, but completely against brand guidelines. Exactly. They just don't understand where, where the disconnect is. But we have our first question from one of the, the viewers. And Gregory, oh, cool. Gregory wants to know, like, is there a reason behind the format or is it like the best practice and everybody kind of follows their lead because they're kind of like in print. There's also kind of like 
there are certain formats for, for oh, flyers, sure. for, but also to digital, you get certain. Mm -hmm. So how, what's, is there a reason behind the A4, A5, A6 formats? I hope Gregory, that that's what you mean by the way. Well, when it comes, when it came to printing, I think the formatting just came to whatever the, 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 the standard, like a paper company came up with. So. So from what I, from what I remember from school, the, the different sizes of sheets came out of a, a certain flat size, right? So it was like, however many sheets you could get out of a certain size source piece of paper. So I think the sort is like 36 by 36 by 40. Is that a 31? No, yeah. it was like a, it was like a very large sheet of paper. And so you would, you would take a ream of that 500 sheets of this very large piece of paper. And you'd have to cut it in a way to get the maximum amount of sheets of A4 paper that you wanted. You know, in America, it's eight and a half by 11, 11 by 17, right? And, or, you know, and then a legal size, you know, eight and a half by 14. And so like those sizes were dictated based on the original size that the paper mill created. But as far as the formatting, I think that the Gregory might be getting into is like the, the digital form or the, like the, the formatting of the, of the particular, why does a flyer have to have certain column, certain guidelines, certain grids, right? It's almost like photography yeah. where the, the rule of thirds, yeah. where you, you take your, you take your picture and you have to put in your, you have to do your composition within a certain uh, you break the frame up into, into three sections and you have to compose your picture in a certain way to, for it to be, you know, and I think, I think that's what George is referring to. A lot of the formats really just came from how it was produced, right? So like there was something called a gripper. So like on a press, there would be like this metal arm that had little, little grippers on it. And it was an eighth, eighth of a eighth of an inch away from the edge of the sheet. And so you couldn't have any content that close to the edge of the sheet because the, the little gripper had to pull it up, had to be able to grab the sheet to send it through the press, right? And if you had content in that area, it wouldn't be printed on. And so, so that was one of the main reasons why you couldn't go to the edge until you started having things like bleeds and crop marks and you'd be able to print on a, you know, a much, a little bit larger sheet so you could, you have things print off the edge, but then you'd cut it on the crop marks and then you'd have the bleed over that, the crop marks. So you'd be able to have it, it looked like you printed all the way to the edge, but in fact, you didn't, you just were cutting the, you were cutting, you were printing on a larger sheet of paper, but then you were cutting it down to eight and a half by 11 or 11 by 17 or whatever. So that, you know, when people started doing that, then it was sort of like the formatting went out the window. You can, you could produce and create however you wanted to, but Somewhere along the way, whether it be because of premium brands or, or however, however it happened, you know, you'd, you would have your director of marketing or your VP of marketing or, or whatever, and they would interact with the, with the creative manager and they would come up with these brand standards, right? You know, so like your logo had to be a certain, certain points away from the edge of the, sh of the, the sheet of the cut sheet, right? And, you know, the point size of your font had to be your, your name was, was, was 10 point bold of this particular font. And then your title was italicized, but it was three parts smaller. And, and the letting between the lines was a certain amount of width. And, you know, some people might say, 
that that was just micromanagement, but it was it was the premium brand taking a interest in how their brand was represented on every little piece of printed material and digital material that they were using. And if you look at a lot of brand guidelines now and they incorporate digital, they do the same thing, right? They'll take the size, the, the pixel width and the pixel height of a Facebook cover photo, and they will say, they will dictate that their logo has to be, you know, a certain pixel width from the edge here or here. And then, you know, to accommodate the Facebook mobile app versus the desktop app. And so you've got to make sure that everything fits within that particular way because we care about our brand and we need to have the formatting and the guidelines set up a certain way. But these are also the brands that everybody knows. Yeah. Because they keep to these guidelines. Right. That, that makes them like, that makes them strong, I, I guess. Right. Yeah. You know, Pepsi, I'm, Coke, I mean, Disney's notorious for that. Yeah. So I, uh -huh. I see it in clients that we have, like mm -hmm. we know, like, like the big multinational clients that we have, when yeah. we do campaigns for them, we get like a PDF of, of 30, 40 pages with like everything. Right. Like even, even if 20 of those 30 pages are like basic stuff that you're like, okay, right. there's still 10 pages that are like, okay, but you, you have to oblige by these rules. Mm -hmm. Whereas other companies are like, oh yeah. Okay. So. You do our social, right? You make our post. Could you make that document for us? And we're like, wait a minute. No, <laughs> that document is, it's, it's not the same as just. Yeah. It isn't the same thing at all. How you do things on digital is way different than you do like in a physical property, you know, but, but in, in the, in the digital space, in e-commerce, for instance, when we're creating the e-commerce portals, we, we get brands, all the, you know, brand guidelines all the time. And we, we have to fit to them. You know, there are some brands that will take you know, particular theme that we have and they will be okay with us kind of adjusting it. So the colors are the same and we'll, we'll pop their logo in there and we'll adjust a few things where it may not be 100% to their branding standards, but they also don't want to pay for a fully customized theme. You know, so some, some brands are okay with making concessions. Okay. But then we have some of our distributors that their clients are just like, Hey, it needs to be this way. And we are very particular about our brand standards, our guidelines, the theme that you create. We don't care how much it costs. This is how it has to be. And that's just the nature of, of how it is. And we, you know, we have to take all of that into account when we're doing our, our portal development to say, okay, well, what, what is the, the platform that we're developing on capable of? You know, can we meet these? Do we have to ask them to make concessions? You know, all that kind of stuff. And and we don't we don't typically run into that issue that much, but on occasion we do. You know, especially if you're looking if somebody's looking for like an animated banner. Yeah, not something we can really handle on our platform at the moment. But the the type of requests that we can't handle are few and far between at this point. But brand standards are brand standards and they are going to matter whether it be a printed postcard or, you know, a product tile on an e-commerce platform. So on the topic of brand standards yeah. in relation to e-commerce or just uh, companies in general, sure. have you encountered or how do you feel external branding versus internal branding? So usually companies focus a lot on, you know, external branding. 
And yeah. you're talking about portals, if you're talking about big companies with a lot of employees. Yeah. How much emphasis or what's the balance on external branding, like to your consumers, but sure. also branding towards your staff, towards your team? Okay. So, so I may have a little bit different idea on this. Okay. And, and the reason why is I have always had the, the, the school of thought that your employees are your greatest brand ambassadors, right? So you, as a, as an owner of your brand, whether it be your director of marketing or a CEO or a VP of marketing, whatever, your employees need to understand your branding as much or if not more than your consumer, right? So your consumer is going to say, hey, I recognize that brand. It means quality. It means something I like. I bought from them before. I have enjoyed my experience. The relationship with this brand is meaningful to me. So I'm going to make another purchase decision to, to buy a product or service from this brand. Well, the employee needs to have a much, even a much deeper understanding of those brand standards. So invariably work comes up in conversation. It's always going to happen. You know, you're at a beer with your, having a beer with your buddies, work's going to come up, right? Hey, what did you do today? You know, Hey, what did you work on today? Hey, what is your, you know, what's your company working on at the moment? And, you know, if you're a low level position, you may not quite understand or quite know, but if you're mid-level or higher, you got to know what's going on and your company pays you to not only execute the plan that upper management is, is looking for you to deploy, but they're also trusting you that you're, you're going to execute in a way that is going to make the brand look favorable. And so you have to understand what, the brand is all about the brand messaging, the iconography, how it, how the brand is presenting itself. And, and so I, I'll take the, I take the idea that the internal messaging that a company does, no matter how big they are, is more important than the consumer branding messaging, because you never know when a, when a conversation is going to happen where that employee can build a relationship and convert that individual that they're talking to into a paying customer it can happen to anybody right and so that 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 internal employee needs to know how does that brand operate what's it like what does it do that's how I, that's how i look at it so i quickly want to make a jump before we go to overrated underrated yeah i do want to know like how you feel about like the transformation because Everything kind of, it's always made easier. It's made more hands-on that everybody should be able to do it. Of course, you won't be able if you don't put in the work and the effort and the research. But yeah. now we have like really, like the, we've come a long way when it comes to e-commerce. And still, even with all the opportunities that are there, like yeah. countries like Suriname, for instance, a lot of options just don't work uh, mm -hmm. because of the banking system, because the way yeah. certain things are set up. But how do you feel like websites like Shopify and those kind of easy to, to fix front ends to, to, to sell, have they improved the state of e-commerce in, in general? 
I think they have made it easier for a brand to engage in a transactional relationship with a consumer. And it's funny you mentioned this because we were, I was having a conversation with a, with a distributor today that we're, you know, looking to convert over to our platform and they were using a, you know, one of those kind of build yourself website systems, which, which I'm not down on them because I, I think they have lowered the barrier of entry to a lot of brands to be able to sell their and market their services or their products online. You know, Shopify, Squarespace, you know, Etsy, you know, things like that. I think, I think those types of platforms have their purpose and their place. But sometimes you reach a point where you have one, you have diminishing returns, but then you also are going to push the technology of the particular platform to its limits and then it becomes ineffective. So this, this particular company was talking to me about the platform they're using and they just, some of the tech that we're, that they're using is maxing out what this platform can do. And, and so again, I think every one of them have their place, but if a business is looking to grow and they're going to grow quickly, or they have a plan to reach a certain level, they, they got, they better have another platform in mind to transition to when they reach that point before it's too late, you know, before they start see, realizing that their website is broken, it's not working for them, that kind of thing. The, one of the things I, I don't necessarily love about Shopify, I'm just picking on them because it's the one I was thinking about more recently is that sometimes their code's a little heavy and they don't always have the best user experience at checkout, but those things can be edited and augmented on the fly, which I think is cool. Shopify does give you a lot of options of kind of how, what type of information you're requiring from the checkout process. But there are certain things that you, that you're selling that you do have to, you might have to require lots of info and that can kind of bog down the UX from the checkout experience. But again, it really just depends on what your ultimate goal is at the end, because every platform if you, you need to have something that you're going to be able to scale and some of these more lower barrier to entry type platforms aren't able to scale to a size that some of these brands really require. Yeah. It depends on the market as well. Yeah. So if I look here, I think, so we have an issue with payment, like yes. we're getting there. <laughs> like there are a couple of really cool initiatives that are growing. Mm -hmm. Also with mobile payments, it's becoming much easier to do mobile payments now. Right. But I think like the two most used platforms in Suriname are KiteSide. I think okay. KiteSide is kind of like, especially the Instagram shops in Suriname kind of go KiteSide route also mm -hmm. because you have the payment option, but also have kind of the registration option, which means sure. like it's pay on delivery and uh, WooCommerce. I mean, I think those okay. are the... Those are the two main ones here mm -hmm. for, especially those that don't, I mean, credit card payments, like in the U S like, I mean, credit yeah, we don't have payment gateways. But we, we don't have the payment gateways yeah. here, like, like in the U S and like, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the, there's, there is literally no e-commerce site unless, well, that's not true. Amazon or Shopify or WooCommerce or KiteSite or, or, or Squarespace, none of those will do payment on, on delivery. You know, that Amazon, eBay, those are all prepay stuff, right? So we, but even if we were doing a, a portal for a consumer, 
we would never say, hey, do this as a purchaser. We always say credit card guys, because you're going to get stiffed. Somebody's going to order something and then all of a sudden they don't have the money and you're going to be left with the product. You know the he, funny he, thing here? So, so yeah. of course, so, so what, it says payment on delivery, but it isn't really payment on delivery. It says that, but you basically, it, it doesn't get pre-ordered. So it doesn't get shipped because we have a lot of companies here who kind of sell stuff they buy themselves by Amazon. So they only, they only purchase it on Amazon when the client actually pays. Uh, wow, because sure. they, okay. So, so in the early days of Facebook, this is actually an interesting case study. In, in the early days of, I'm not totally early days, but I'm talking between 2009 and 2012. There was a period of time that Facebook was pushing their marketplace. Right. And people were just not accepting it. They were like, no. guys, seriously, this is a platform where people play games. So we're not going to purchase anything. We don't trust right. Facebook. And then Facebook went all rogue. And they were like, you're not allowed to put, at the time, the, the, the cover photo was like kind of new. So it was yeah. like, you're not allowed yep. to put your phone number on your cover photo. No, no text or very no limited text. text. Yeah. No email address, no contact info on your, and there were companies in Suriname that were like, yeah, it's not like they're going to check us. So they just went against all Oops. the rules and they just started selling on Facebook and, and uh -huh. selling in private messages until Facebook realized like, this isn't really working. We can't right. control this. There is no kind of manual way to, to control this issue. And they were like, okay, you know what? We're, we're going to, we're going to support selling on Facebook again. And then the, the whole 20% text thing came like, yeah, if you're, oh, yep. you're not allowed to have more than 20% text on your Facebook post because then you can't advertise it. And they kind of restricted the band saying like, okay, now you're allowed to put 20% text. But when we advertise, we're just going to bump your, your advertisement a little bit down. And now basically all of a sudden we're like, okay, we're accepting flyers on Facebook now. It's kind of this weird situation where it, it almost felt in the beginning, like Facebook got so upset that people were like, yeah, we're not going to use Facebook for selling that they kind of went against every option to sell and they realized like, wait. But people are going to sell anyways. And that's what right. happened. That went, that's what happened with us. Like mm -hmm. pages that just started. They, it's, it's kind of like we never had drop shipping, mm -hmm. like as, as a real service in, in Suriname, but it was kind of a, 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 a different style of, of, of drop shipping. So for instance, we have some people here using Patreon and OnlyFans and those kind of things. Okay. But we have also have our own version of it which is basically just creating content and people just send you micropayments through mobile. So, oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's interesting to see how like the big tech companies and the big platforms kind of create ways, but then they're not suited for all the countries in the world. So some countries can benefit from them and they kind of create yeah. their own version, version of it. Well, I mean, everybody's going to adapt. Like yeah. if they, if they see that there is a, a need for something, you're going to find something that works or take, you know, take a, take an application that's already there and find a way for it to, to work with, with the situation that they have. I mean, yeah. Payment gateways, man, there are, those things are a mess. International commerce, dude, I, you know, that's, that's still something I'm trying to even learn right now. And I've been in the e-commerce business for a long time. It's, we have a client in New Zealand 
that man it's it, it's, it's difficult it's, it's really it's tough. really but and but would you recommend them to still kind of work together with amazon because they have kind of the the infrastructure the worldwide infrastructure they, data how well well are they? we we i don't i don't necessarily we don't use yeah. them for commerce we we use their, their aws Amazon yeah. services for a lot of their, we use, we do a ton of our integration through AWS. Almost, almost all of it is actually, you know, the, the thing with Amazon and listen, Jeff Bezos set the standard for how easy it is to order something, right? You just have that swipe now. Yeah. You if you have your payment card and your address, shipping address in your profile, you don't even have to go to a checkout screen. You just swipe to checkout, right? That's cool. That's good user experience, right? It also makes it easy to buy stuff, which which is what you want. Yeah, right? sometimes but, buy stuff you don't need necessarily. Yeah, buy stuff you don't need, but but that's slick, right? That's that's kind of where I think I think that's a standard. I think that's where everybody needs to try and attain, if possible, to try and just make it lower as many barriers to enable that transaction as possible. That's kind of my my thing, within reason. Like you still have to capture certain information so you can follow up with them. But that's why we don't ever do a, a true guest checkout user experience. We, we, we mandate that a user puts in at least an email and a phone yeah. number, you know, or, and, and a name. Interesting. Yeah. Quickly to follow up on that. Sure. Does there automatically, is, is there always a, an update option for, for email or promotional mails when, when you create the registration for, for the user? So, yeah. so that's really up to the distributor and to the buyer or the buyer company. We, we have a module that we, we can plug in to allow for that. And it's just a matter of, you know, say, you know, sign up here for whatever. Um, is an industry standard and is the industry standard that, because in some cases you go to a website and the box is already like think it's like already saying, right. I want, and you have to remove it. And then right. in other cases, it's just empty. And if you don't, it, yeah. In this case, because it is an e-commerce transaction, we do the the platform automatically sends out certain email addresses based on their transaction. Obviously, there's a you know thank you for your order email, and more often than not, there is a shipping acknowledgement email that also gets sent out. But there you have to there isn't an automatic the user's email address is not automatically put into a marketing system, right? You can ask the user to opt in at a certain point in the checkout is, if you want to. Is that due to regulations and private rules and laws? Is it, when it, yeah. yeah, and I think in in America, we have certain laws in place that a a domain can be placed on a blacklist for spam if a user receives a marketing email that they never opted in for and they could say i never opted in for this and that that email or domain can be or that domain can be or email just can be blacklisted it's a can spam app yeah it's can yeah. it's yeah. can spam yeah. and and so there so you have to it's same with text messaging too you actually have to physically say, yes, I want those marketing emails and they can't be already filled in. They have to be open. So you can make them required that they have to choose yes or no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> but but they have to they have to be open. They can't be yeah. filled into yes. Yeah. And they actually have to physically say yes. I want these marketing emails. And is a double opt-in also necessary, or that depends? It depends. Political emails have to be double, but most like e-commerce, if you're going to incorporate a marketing solution like you know like HubSpot or Marketo mm -hmm. or or Agora Pulse, you have to. It's just one one level. Okay. So Diego and Jeff, do we still have time left for some over/unders? Because we already passed. That's fine, man. I got time. Okay. I got time. Okay. I'm good. So Diego, can we let's do some over overrated, underrated? Maybe you can just shortly introduce that segment to Jeff. Yeah. So we have a recurring segment on our show where we do uh, overrated, underrated, inspired from Gary Vee's uh, over under. So we basically just throw some random topics at you. And Gary Vee overrated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you tell us if you think it's overrated okay. or underrated, and uh, you can give a brief explanation why or why not. Uh, depending on how controversial you think it is. Etsy, overrated or underrated? Oh, dude. I think it's underrated. Underrated for it, it allows makers to really showcase their work. And I don't think it gets enough love for that part. Okay. Adobe, Fla Adobe Flash. Oh, oh dude, that's, that's dead. That's dead. <laughs> yeah. That's dead. Put, put, I mean, no, I hated Adobe Flash. That's the most, over it was overrated then. It's overrated now. And I think most browsers don't even use it. They can't it's, use it. It's officially, it's officially dead, but it's I just dead. had to ask the question. No, I hated Flash. <laughs> hated it. Sucked. Okay. Gradients in design. Overrated. Oh, underrated. <laughs> Those are overrated. They don't produce well on laser. I mean, you want a gr gradient in in a printed material? Like, go back to 1995, bro. That's no gradients, no way. Don't use them. Digital is one thing. Printed, no. Okay. Referral systems in e-commerce, overrated or underrated? Referral systems, overrated but underused. Care to elaborate that? That, that's yeah. a smart way to yeah 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 that over overrated. I I think I think they they're more they're more work than they're worth, but they do have their place. But I don't think I don't I think they're underused. They're not they're not used as much as they could be for for sales funnels. Okay, I got one more here. Yeah, offset printing is not dead. <laughs> it's alive and well. <laughs> it is underrated. Underrated. Okay. Fair enough. And the last one, QR codes. Oh man. All right. So if you would have asked me this 10 years ago, I would have said that they are overrated because nobody used them. But I think they are learning to be and I and I was a big fan. I'm still a big fan of QR codes, but they just weren't utilized because culturally speaking, we didn't know how to do it in America. And I think they are still somewhat underrated, but I also don't think that they're being utilized properly. Well, COVID kind of helps, right? Like, I think, yeah, I think COVID menus, really did help. Menus for, for restaurants, like, mm -hmm. like it was there all along. With the oh yeah, that's something you see now, COVID. Yeah. All right, do, do I have time for a quick story about QR codes? Yeah, sure, go ahead. Okay, so here's the thing, and you could, you could edit this out and, and post if you want, but so, 
Well, I did it. I used to do it when I, of course I was both big in integrated printing or integrated marketing back in the 2010s, right? Because I was doing print. I also was really doing marketing. So integrated marketing was huge for me. I was a big proponent of it. And I use a couple of stories about QR codes that blew people's minds. The, the first one, I'll just, I'll just tell this one. So at Taiwan was uses QR codes all over the place. And during their busy life, you could, there, there would be a, a chain of grocery stores that, that bought out space on the subway station walls and it looked like a grocery store, right? So if you were waiting for your subway or your train, you could shop, you could, you could snap the QR code of all the products that you wanted, send it to the grocery store and it would be delivered to your apartment or your house by the time you got off the subway. Right. And it was all done by QR codes. Right. So it was like a really early version of, you know, grocery store delivery services or grocery store pickup services that America's adopted mostly due to COVID. But 10, 15 years ago, well, 10 years ago, really, in other countries, it was being used very readily. I'm thinking, and, and when I say print is not dead, so I'm going back to this one too. Okay. Okay. So, there was a music festival in Britain in 2011 that was using capacitive touch inks, right? So they would have these they would have these music posters with this capacitive touch ink that if you touched a certain part of the poster, it would play like a 10 second snippet of a song that was going to be played at this music festival. Dude, come on, man. That's it. Like. And it never really caught on, which is unfortunate. Interesting, really interesting cool. applications. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, that was great. We we have one more question, okay. and uh, before we close it off, can somebody please explain to me why mega brands still spend so much on marketing when they already have so much market share? I I already know what Coke is. Do I need more ads? Do they have the money to spend? Why not? I mean, think think about. Like what would happen if Coke all of a sudden took their marketing money and did something else with it, right? Now they did some really poor marketing decisions back in the day with Coke Classic and all the other missteps. Pepsi did the same thing with like Pepsi Clear. But I mean, imagine if they stopped spending all that money on ads. I think there is enough evidence that their market share would go down. And that's why they do it because the, the margin of who's number one in the soft drink industry is so slim that, and they care so much about their brand position that they're going to spend as much money as they possibly can right. because they want to stay number one. They want to stay number two. They want to be there. I feel also there, there are two things to take into additional things to take in consideration. Mm, what, question, is, what is awareness? Like really, I mean, if, 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 and that's something we experience in social media all day. If you're like at the forefront, if you post every day, the algorithm will take your post and you will be visible. Like people, sure. I, I feel like people underestimate, like if you would post daily on any platform, if you would post mm -hmm. daily on Facebook, if you would post daily on TikTok, if you would post mm -hmm. daily on YouTube, on yeah. LinkedIn, whatever platform you would pick out, if you would right. post daily, you would see an significant growth over a year, uh, over a year time. 100%. And if you would continue, 
I mean, that, that it, it, it kind of multiplies with it really quickly. And if you look at all the successful creators, it's, it's what they've done. It's they've never stopped. Um, so that's one thing that you have to take to in consideration that if you stop another, another brand is just going to take your spot and people are going to start buying that brand because they see that right. when they have to make the decision, they go for that one. Secondly, right. like you said, they have the budget. So because they're that big, other companies cannot compete with them right? because they spend so much money that it's, you, you can get the same exposure. Just right. Yeah. You just got to hope yeah. for the, whatever's left over. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are plenty of brands that you could look at that have just, they, they had all the money, they spent all the money. And now all of a sudden it's like their market share is diminished because they either stopped spending as much money or they transitioned to something else. Or they bought their own things like Yahoo did. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's for sure. Direction, basically. Yeah. Right. But yeah, this was very insightful on especially the, the parallels on print and digital. And mm -hmm. I, I think more companies should focus on, you know, getting those guidelines, getting that consistency across platforms, be it physical, digital, or hybrid to do that something that needs more, I guess, emphasis or awareness. I, I guess it's, it's education and mm -hmm. especially the point on, you know, educating or having your internal team or employees embody that right. should be, you know, more relevant. But that being said, one of the Jeff Howells appreciate you coming on to Social Convos to, to share, you know, your experience, the transition. And the fun story on the different Jeff House, which is quite interesting, brings right. up some topics on identity, which we yeah. might have to cover in a future episode. Sure. Uh, Shandu, any closing remarks? Us, and then you can close us off. Yeah, I just want to say it was very insightful. People have said that as well. Also commenting on the internal client employee stuff. Yeah, it was really a pleasure. I feel it went a little bit too quick. But I guess yeah, that we have to figure a way to do this more often and connect a little bit more often as well. We sure, really man. I'm game. Thanks. We really appreciate you being here. This episode is live on Facebook and YouTube so and, and Twitch and Twitter as well. So people can review there. The audio episode will be edited by Diego and will be available, I think, somewhere next month to play it safe. Uh, yeah, I'm behind on schedule. Okay. The audio version will also be uploaded, of course. And thanks again, Jeff. We will be back here next week, simply same time. Thank you for watching. Bye-bye.